You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. Cliff McGrath is one of the most influential people in the history of American soccer. The longtime secretary rules editor for the NCAA Soccer Committee was a coach for almost 50 years. The trail of lives touched runs from high schools to colleges to the pros, from Detroit to Chicago to Boston to Seattle and pretty much everywhere in between. Cliff grew up in Detroit, the son of a police officer and a homemaker. He was a self-described miscreant who was headed down the wrong path. It wasn't until he chased a good-looking cheerleader into a tent revival shortly after high school that life changed dramatically and ironically. Instead of chasing his dream to play hockey at Michigan State and ultimately the Detroit Red Wings, he enrolled at Small Wheaton College in suburban Chicago. McGrath says he was dared into soccer by his college roommate in his sophomore year at Wheaton. Through the years, he coached soccer at Wheaton, later in Boston, and eventually at Seattle Pacific University, where his squads played for 10 national championships and won five. He's lost count on how many coaches in the game today come from his coaching tree, but let's just say his tree is one big tree. Cliff, welcome to Sports Connections. Thank you very much. Uh, Listening to you, I remember when J. Michael Kenyon and I used to host the 7-Eleven sports show in Boston or in uh, uh, Seattle, and we interviewed Red Grange once, and J. Michael was, uh, uh, you know, 147 IQ, and he spilled for a while in terms of introducing Red with all of his accomplishments. And when he stopped and led to this place where we are right now, I'll never forget that Red said, I like the way you talk, Mr. Kenyon. So I can just say, I like the way you talk, Mr. Smith. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I want to, I want to start with influence. I know that's been a big word in your life for as long as I've known you. And, and for the, I'm not going to say how old you are, but for the 60 or 70 years before I met you. Uh, but you have been, you have been an influence on a lot of people. Who influenced you the most? Well, that's a tough question to answer because, uh, I can't, it's a little bit like uh, the father I, uh, of three girls and three boys, and this would be my answer to which team I consider uh, the best team as well. And uh, we said, well, who's your favorite of the six, three boys, three girls? He said, you'd have to blindfold me. Uh, but I think if, if I were to really reduce it to um, maybe a couple categories from the human standpoint, uh, certainly, my mother, uh, after my father and mother divorced, and my father was in a tragic on-site accident as a policeman, um, she became the rock that, uh, even though she was, she sustained many childhood diseases, uh, you know, suffering, heart problems, uh, she was the rock. Uh, certainly helped me through the fingers issue, which we may get to later. But my mother would be the number one, and I didn't pay her the proper honor that the scripture requests and urges us to do for years and years and years. I think I fell into the trap of people saying, well, my dad did this, my dad did Well, my dad was somewhat of a traitor. He did rally and come back into my life later on, but my mother certainly was a rock. And, uh, and then I, I think number two would be my coach at Wheaton, Bob Baptista, who was one of these guys that you would die for. He, he never had uh, any huge speeches. He didn't raise his voice. Uh, but he did say things like, of what significance is the victory if the challenge is too small? 
And uh, he organized his life. In the book I wrote, I said, uh, in terms of motivating coaches, get organized and lead a proper life. And I once said that I never saw him with the Bible, but I knew he read it. I never saw him pray, but I knew he did. And so I think Bob Baptista, who I was privileged to eulogize at his memorial service here four or five years ago, uh, Bob Baptista had a tremendous impact on me. And then my first camp instructor, when I went to camp, and I've been in camping now for almost 50 years, was Miles Strodel, who had a withered arm, and it was uh, recruited by the Chicago Cubs when he graduated from Wheaton College, because even with one good arm, he could stroke the ball like a bullet and uh, managed somehow to catch a ball with the other hand. But uh, Miles was a man whose life was impeccable. And uh, if we, if you know, David, uh, Saul killed his thousands and David his multi-thousands. Well, Miles' total influence literally thousands of campers and staff members. I still run my camps, which are in their 50th year. I still run them exactly like he uh, taught us to run our camps when I worked for him for 13 summers. So Miles Stodel certainly would be uh, in that group. Um, and then V. Raymond Edmond was the president of Wheaton. Here I come as a brawling street guy, uh, barely two months into my life as a Christian and, and uh, listening to him, um, he would say things in chapel like, we always hear people saying somehow we'll get along. Uh, but he said, I, I'm going to reject that. He said, it's not for those of us who know Jesus. He says, it's not somehow, it's triumphantly. And uh, those etchings are still part of my mind and my heart. And, uh, and then, of course, Jesus himself. I mean, you can't leave him out if you switch from the human to the to the side that began when I came out of that tent meeting. And obviously he disturbs me because uh, he's not always the answer. Sometimes he's my problem, but uh, he certainly influences my life. Just tell a little bit about that story. I alluded to it in the introduction and you just alluded to it. Uh, You were, let's put it nicely. You were a troublemaker and, and then you went into this tent revival not with the truest intentions, but you came out and you, your life has been different for, you know, a number of years since. Well, it's too late for a short story when it gets to that, but I'll try to be uh, as brief as possible. Okay. Uh, when, when I said my father came back to my life, I was uh, in the front row of a courtroom with six other kids ready to go to reform school. We knew we were finished as far as our behavior. And uh, out of the side door before the proceedings began came this well-built, 220-pound physical guy, bald, um, and uh, stood in front of the judge for about, you know, five or ten minutes and then came over to me and uh, said, come with me. When I turned in a snicker sort to the other six guys, by the way, none of whom I've ever seen since, and we were like a band of bad brothers, and... um, Within an hour, I discovered riding, standing in the back seat of an old 39 Plymouth uh, that he was driving to a bar out in Detroit, uh, that he was my father. And someone had contacted him after having never seen him uh, since I was in diapers. Wouldn't remember that anyway. Um, but basically got a hold of him and said, this kid can't go to reform schools. So he married to a second wife with two girls and a boy, uh, one other child had uh, died in childbirth. Um, 
we wound up living in a two-bedroom room house, call it a house, with uh, hardly, uh, we didn't have any electricity, no running water. Uh, you know, the, the toilet was a 10-gallon creosote-filled pan, and, and, uh, and yet that's where I began to go to school. Uh, to, to back to school, I dropped out um, in Caledonia, Michigan, which was on the outskirts of Grand Rapids. And uh, you had a choice of playing going to East Grand Rapids, which they said I shouldn't go because that was a training ground for more hoodlums. And or this little place across the street called Caledonia was basically I wound up there. Well, uh, Sue Klein turned out to be the head cheerleader and majorette. And of course, my heart went beat, beat, beat right away. And uh, but I found out she'd never had a boyfriend and she'd never been kissed, to put it bluntly. And uh, so guess what my goal was? Man who had already learned those skills. And uh, so, but she wouldn't go where we all went. So I went where she went, which was to a Wednesday noon hour Bible meeting hosted by Phyllis Leavenworth, who was a recent graduate of Wheaton College, whatever that was. And of course, my heart was set on Michigan State and uh, hockey and so on. And so uh, the guys used to say, what are you, a GI Jesus boy? And I'd say, amen, hallelujah. <laughs> and they, oh, we get it. Uh, because uh, she was unbelievable. And by the way, her recent husband, uh, her husband uh, passed away, years and years passed away. And we've been chatting with each other a little bit over the past. <laughs> anyway, we went to a tent meeting because school was out and there was no more Bible school. And we happened by this vacant lot and it was occupied by cars and tents. And, and that was where it all really changed. I went forward, whatever that means. And, uh, and uh, that night really... Uh, uh, it took Jesus into my heart and life, and, and that's where the journey began. Well, I actually began with my mother, because my mother was emphatic about uh, my brother and me becoming Christians, so we just kind of revolted, and, and, but, but it came back. So you had a lifestyle change there. I want to ask you about uh, your switch to soccer. Um, obviously, you said you were a, a, a hockey fan. You planned on playing hockey at Michigan State and eventually for the Red Wings. And then you ended up playing soccer. Just tell that story. Well, uh, my first year in Wheaton, of course, I worked about 60 hours a week because uh, there was no money behind me when I got there. And uh, it was a faith move all the way. But um, I was what by the time uh, the fall st of the second year started, I had a little extra money from summer work, and uh, I was walking across campus in my college roommate was coming the other way. He was a high school American basketball player from Dallas, Texas, and it was during the era when freshmen couldn't play varsity sports. And uh, so I said, "What's happening?" He said, "Well, I said I'm going to turn out for soccer." I said, "Soccer?" I said, "You mean kickball?" Because in those days it was kickball. And I said, isn't that what the girls, and you could call them girls in those days, play at recess? Well, he made a disparaging remark about my uh, manhood and dared me to go with him. So we got laced up and wound up up at the practice field. That I, Keeping in mind, the team had been up in the woods in Wisconsin for two weeks, practicing, getting ready for the, for the open game, which was coming up that Saturday. Um, well, after two rounds... Uh, uh, two laps around the field, I made up a story about my back being, you know, in pain or something, I, even though I could outrun everybody on the field. 
And uh, Bob Baptista in his Coke bottle thick glasses had a lot of wisdom and he just quietly said, well, why don't you just stay with him for a couple of days? Because he saw me out running everybody else just in the running. We only had six balls in those days and they all had laces on. If you got hit in the forehead, it'd be a stitch mark for a year. <laughs> and uh, and so, uh, so basically uh, I stayed in the first game of soccer I ever saw was uh, four days after I turned out and I replaced an All-American at center halfback, a guy by the name of Gordy Anderson. Um, and, and there's a lot of sidebar stories that are kind of fun, but uh, too long to share. But anyway, that's where it all began. And of course, three years later, he called seven of us uh, seniors into his living room. And uh, we kind of, and this was in the fall after our senior year. And I'm getting ready to go to law school. And um, at that point, he, uh, he said, gentlemen, he said, I've brought you in here before the press conference this afternoon. I had I'd never heard the word press conference. I thought some guys are going to be ironing clothes. And, uh, <laughs> and so, so, he, so he said, I'm leaving. Well, nobody left. Uh, in pro sports, there wasn't any free agency yet. So everybody stayed with the same team except Babe Ruth. And so, um, so I, I, I'm the guy. I was a little older. I spoke up. I said, what's the problem? He said, I got a sabbatical. I'd never heard the word. So I said, is it terminal? And uh, of course, <laughs> he, he laughed and they laughed. And, <laughs> and I learned a lot of terms that way because he said, you know, I'm going to get my PhD. So I learned that you connect sabbatical with graduate play. And, and so then I didn't ask the next guy. I said, well, who's going to coach next year? He didn't bat an eye. He said, you are. And of course, the next year, without those seven seniors and nothing left over, uh, the Chicago Sun-Times predicted we wouldn't win a game. And a new coach and no coaching experience and raw bone and replacing a legend and all that kind of good stuff. And of course, we won the Big Ten Conference Championship. Well, we shared it. We shared it with uh, Erlen University. But but, uh, nonetheless, then instead of... uh, you know, heading off to New York to law school after my wife-to-be graduated, uh, we parked in a 57 Chevy at the bottom of Lake Michigan and uh, prayed and said, well, do we go to New York and go to law school or do we go to Boston where I had gotten a, an invitation to coach at a place called Gordon College um, that was dropping football and starting soccer. So we finished praying, put the car in gear, and instead of going through Dayton and Cleveland in that direction, we were headed to Detroit and through Canada up to Boston. I guess you can use the old phrase, the rest is history. I I want to go back to something you said. The very first soccer game you ever watched, you watched from the field because you were playing. Correct. So did you understand the rules or, I mean, how did you learn the game while playing it, that seems that seems a little well. It, it, not to discredit the game of soccer, which is thousands of years old, but up until maybe just the last thirty or forty years, soccer was pretty much a brawl. It was like kick the ball, and then you know everybody close to it scrams for it. It's more like rugby. In fact, soccer got its name when the first guy in England said, "Where are you going?" He said, "I'm going to rugger," and the other guy said, "You coming?" He said, "No, I'm going to soccer," even though they call it football. And, uh, and effectively, uh, tactics, particularly for defenders, and I was the center halfback, which was the key position on the team in those days, in the old two-back days. 
it was basically kick it or head it out. You never took the ball down and dribbled it. You, if you did that, you got benched. And so it wasn't really that difficult to figure out. And of course, I got to the ball first 95% of the time. And I was still a street fighter. So I didn't care who was in my way. Um, plus my, my roommate, who was going out to get in shape for basketball, wound up in goal, a live some cat that he was. And he wound up a two-time All-American in goal. And, of course, in those days, when he goes out to get a ball, the center halfback, as fleet-footed as they usually were, wound up behind him to kind of guard the open net. And so many times I might have, been a, I might have inherited the ball that he missed or couldn't stop. And, uh, and so that's just how it all. The rest of it is an evolution, which obviously all of the world of soccer continues to try to study today. How long did it take you to to really start liking the sport of soccer? Did it happen right away, or did it take time? It took about uh, the sec- it took about the second day of practice, the four days of practice. There was a little five foot six guy from Africa by the name of Davy Arnold, a missionary's kid, and uh, he was heading off to this was in practice. He was flying at top speed uh, over to the side of the field, and there was a telephone player put pole with a guy wire. Uh, you know, one of those things that shouldn't have been close to a field that could decapitate you. And I was coming the other way. And, of course, the coach had us the best defense playing against the offense. And so I was matched up against him. Well, we were both going nonstop at top speed. We wound up off the field about six to eight feet and wrapped around the guy wire like spinning tops and me face down under Davy Arnold with my face in the grass. And I had grass in my teeth and dirt coming up my nose. And I remember very consciously laying there saying, I like this game. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, and he was known as a destroyer because the year before down in Purdue University in Lafayette, Indiana, uh, he and these, and the fullbacks in those days were, were recruited because of their size. So they're all big lumbering six foot four, because their only job was to kick it or, or, or head the ball out. Well, a fleet-footed center halfback not only had to mark the center forward on the other team, but he was always the guy scooting behind those big 6'4 guys if the little wingers beat them. Logic would tell you they were going to if they had the ball under control because they were like mosquitoes. And, of course, frequently my great uh, plot was, or my great accomplishment was to hide behind them on full set of uh, steam and as soon as the ball passed them, I would sweep in, get the ball, take care of the mosquito, and head up the, the other direction. <laughs> so, so that that whole thing, I guess, endeared me to Bob Baptiste, and so I started a center halfback. And I only came out the next three years one minute when I talked back to a referee, uh, which basically was the legacy of Baptiste that I carried into my coaching. So if you play for me and you get a yellow card for anything other than hustle, if you get it for talking to the referee, you're going to be benched immediately. And uh, I have some great stories over the years from that experience. But that's pretty much that second day of practice. Uh, I don't know if Davey's still alive or not, but I could thank him for helping me. With, and Baptista for helping me love the game. And my college roommate, who's a retired pastor in New York City. Yeah, it's interesting. Most people will point to something when they scored a great goal or – you know, intercepted a pass if they're a football player or, you know, blocked a shot if they're a basketball player or hit a home run. And in your 
your first love of it was when you were when you face planted next to a telephone pole. <laughs> that yeah, kind with of grass, with grass in my teeth. Yeah. Yes, that that uh, that certainly fits the the Cliff McGrath that I've known and loved for so many years. Um, and you talk about the fact that Bob Bat- Baptista influenced the way you coached. Um, were you able to, with the players that you coached the many, many years, uh, almost 50 years coaching, were you able to pass along that love for the game uh, effectively to your players? Well, I think if you, uh, if you run into someone who is happy, uh, it's a real effort to try not to be happy. If you run into somebody that's angry or sad, uh, most people absorb their attitude and absorb their emotions. And I think uh, when you consider the trail I was on, it would be very difficult not to take that contagion into every chapter of the life ahead of me. And uh, I never once said to anybody, you better love this game. Uh, and, you know, when I was privileged, to, I mean, I don't consider myself a celebrity, but but in Seattle, I'm a public figure because the press tells me my obituary is written in advance. So, so basically, um, they don't have the day on there, do they? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Not that it's not that planned out. <laughs> it's actually planned. It's in Hebrews nine twenty seven, but I'm, it doesn't reveal the exact date. But it's pretty okay. well planned. Okay. But in any event, I think that that has a lot to do with the. Um, with what becomes contagious with other people. I, and, and I never told them they had to be excited about the game. If they were there, obviously they had some interest similar to I had, part of which might be the unknown, part of which might be the fact that they just, uh, you know, there's five different key motivations why kids turn out for sports, and I've lectured on those. But uh, whatever the motivation is, uh, once you're there, uh, it's pretty hard not to stay happy or fired up about it. I mean, a Cubs fan is still a Cubs fan, yeah. and I'll always be a Red Wings fan, a Tigers fan, and a Lions fan, even though the last few years that's been like, you know, drinking poison for breakfast. So. Yeah, yeah, not not good. Um, we've talked about the influence you've had on so many young coaches. I want to talk about one in particular, and I see today you're wearing a Barry University uh, polo shirt. Um, the Barry University won the 2018 uh, NCAA Division II championship. Is that date correct? That's correct. And it's coached by a, a charming, very handsome young man, must get it from his mother, uh, yep. named Steve McGrath. Uh, yes. Talk about talk about your influence on your son. And uh, and did you, did you encourage him to be a coach or did that just come by being around you? Well, uh, in terms of a tacit, uh, you know, practical ex- expression, uh, no, I don't fit that uh, definition in any way. And part of it is because when Al Miller, the great pro coach, and obviously had been down the college trail uh, many years, uh, visited my home back here years ago, I said, I made the comment in our living room about, well, I don't pressure my son. And he just erupted. He said, give me a break. He said, the guy lives in your house. So I think if from the standpoint that, you know, we were always buddies. We used to play uh, one-on-one soccer in the bedroom uh, with me guarding the, the door uh, and or, or him guarding the door and me guarding the king-size bed, which gave him a lot more goal to shoot at. 
And uh, many times we heard from mother downstairs, stop what you're doing up there. So <laughs> and we were just doing it. We were just doing it because if it had been marbles or, or yeah. razor blades, we'd have been still doing the same thing. This happened to be the soccer ball. And of course, I never, you know, I never told him to turn out for soccer. When I went to his games, his youth games, I would hide in the bushes because I didn't want to create any pressure with the audience or the coach. And, uh, and I would change that. Years later, I apologized and said, if I had to do it again, I'd be on the sideline shouting your name every two minutes. But, um, but I never actually said anything to him. After his pro career in Chicago and, and Milwaukee, he came back to Seattle. And I'd had a brouhaha with my athletic director who wouldn't work on our behalf uh, to, and I served under 17 uh, athletic directors over wow. the years. Um, and this one happened to be a short termer, but uh, I had an assistant coach who was basically staying on as our goalkeeper coach, using his own savings as uh, income while he was also a uh, copy machine salesman walking the streets. And uh, he said he could stay and do that, but he wanted to get his master's. So I went to the AD and said, said what, uh, what's the possibility? Well, he promised to talk to the executive vice president because there was a rule that they wouldn't swap, you know, uh, degrees for employment. But he could make an exception. Well, he failed to do that. So I came back ready to go on our Eastern trip. And he came to me, said, I can't go. He said, I simply can't go. So I went into the uh, AD's office. And it's one of the only times I ever confronted an athletic director. And I said, I'm going to hire my son as an assistant because John is, has resigned. And he'd been with me for 10 years. And uh, the athletic director just sat there kind of dribbling. And, and I said, well, I don't, there's no option because I said, you haven't gone to the athletic director or to the VP and, uh, and I've lost John, one of the best assistants. And he was our goalkeeper for our 85 championship. So, so that's where our, you know, now in the meantime, Steve got a job as the high school coach in a nearby North side high school and beat the reigning kind of the Notre Dame or the UCLA of basketball uh, high school that had always been the power and he changed all that with beating them and uh, and then I did have a little bit to do with him coming to Barry because when I got the call from Mike Cavone who had won three national championships at Barry with the women said the women's program is pretty good I've been made the uh, interim as AD and I need to clean up the men's program it's in the dust and I said well I said I got 10 guys out of the 150 former players that are coaching that would fit that program. I said, I think the best coach is 10 yards down the hallway. And he said, who's that? I said, my son. So he said, would he be interested? I said, I don't know. So I didn't even put him on hold. I laid the phone down. I walked down and said to Steve, Steve, uh, would you like to go to Miami? He said, for what? I said, well, Barry and he said, okay. He said, sure. So there's some other steps, obviously, they had to take. But yeah. eventually it turned out. And within one year, he was in the playoffs. And within two years, he was in the final game that lost to Cal State LA, who beat us in the final game on the West Coast in overtime and beat him in overtime on a play that I think I had helped him understand he had to be aware of, but it didn't work. But then, of course, he's been in many, many. Uh, he was coach of the year in the Sunshine State Conference here many times, got all kinds of awards. He's unbelievable as a coach. 
I'm going to ask you a two-part question. Also, I'll say the whole thing and then I'll, we'll, we'll circle back to the first part of it. How does Steve coach like you do? And then the follow-up will be, how does he coach differently? Well, I, I think the first answer is real easy. He wins. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good we point. Won, and we won. <laughs> yeah. uh, differently, I think he's vastly different. First of all, I think he's a far better coach than I was or I am. Uh, I, I was very heavily uh, loaded on the motivational side. Won four of those five national championships with kids nobody else wanted. Um, he's had eloquent players, which is a far more challenging task and requires far more skill as a coach uh, and knowledge of tactics than, you know, a barn burner guy that comes out of the dust and says, come on, boys, we're going over the, over the ridge. Um, he tactically, he's brilliant. Um, obviously he's, um, I have to, I have to give in. He's, you said it in your introduction. He's, He's too good looking to be anything like his dad. <laughs> I mean, I mean, let's face it. <laughs> but, um, but he's and he was a straight A student uh, in college, a straight A student in his uh, graduate program in sports administration. He uh, was a, he's an A licensed coach. Uh, he recruits. He, I think, when he won that championship in eighteen of the twenty four players on his team. Very much like most East Coast colleges, he had 17 foreign players, uh, 12, uh, seven different languages, 12 different nationalities. Um, you know, I would be, you know, running naked at the annual ball to get close to being able to manage that. <laughs> so I think, I think he's stayed ahead of the march. Um, Magnificent uh, guy, my best friend on the planet. Um, I I have to always include my daughter because he she would get upset and yeah and you know there are a handful of people that are also qualified. But in terms of hey pal pal, um, he's certainly one of my best buddies. Um, now you mentioned this earlier. I'm going to ask you the question anyway. You mentioned that, and and you can put a blindfold on if you want. You coached five national championship teams and five others that played for the national championship and, and lost. Do you have a favorite favorite team among those 10? Or maybe it's not even one of those 10. Do you have a favorite team? Well, uh, I, that's a great question because I think you have to – I when I give speeches and I am doing motivational speak, I'm actually uh, doing a series for Nike that's been interrupted by COVID. And um, – and, and I always am introduced as a guy who won four uh, or five national championships in 10 finals. And I said, if you were listening closely, uh, let me start with perspective. Uh, I was a loser five times as well. <laughs> so, so it may, and even though the one that really was the greatest challenge was the one with the greatest talent, uh, it wasn't a case of nobody else wanted, everybody wanted those guys. And most of them went straight to the pros when they graduated. And some of them didn't even graduate. They left and went to pros right away. Um, but if you, by providing perspective, the question is very interesting because I always try to tell my audience to keep perspective when they hear about somebody's accomplishments. 
you know, Sarah, what's her name? Sarah Buxley Barkley, the one who uh, came up with uh, Spanx, is a billionaire uh, that created the, you know, turned uh, women's leggings into a billion dollar industry. Um, she was on PBS one time, interviewed for an hour, and somebody asked her that question. What, what's the whole secret? She said, my father would say to my two siblings and me at breakfast that we couldn't come back that night unless we failed at at least one thing. Mm. And so uh, that failure factor became a stepping stone instead of a back step. It became a stepping stone. So when I look back of the 49 years of coaching, which if the debacle hadn't happened at Seattle Pacific, I'd still probably be out there kicking butt because I turned out nine pro jobs over the years, feeling mm -hmm. I was called, that the Holy Spirit had called me to, to stay in the Christian college setting. But of the 49 years, I got thinking about the fact one time that it, when I was at Gordon, uh, we had nothing. We had just a bunch of guys. That, and yet we went to um, the national championships within five years. And the guys were singing on the bus. There's nothing that could be finer than to be in Carolina for Thanksgiving. And we went up against um, Quincy College, who had Imundo Camacho and and uh, some real – I think Imundo, uh, Imundo had about 30 goals to his credit by that time. And uh, and so we wound up keeping them at bay. That's when the days when there were only 88 minutes in a game. And for 84 minutes, we kept them scoreless. And then Imundo scored a goal that took him about an hour to get out of the net and stuck in the net. <laughs> uh, and, 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 then, and then Mike Villa, the other high scorer, uh, between the two of them, they had scored 55 goals. He wow. then scored within a couple of minutes, and we lost two to nothing. Next day, we beat uh, the host, uh, Belmont Abbey, to finish second. So that team was comprised of uh, guys that would, you know, it would be like uh, you could make an Animal House movie out of it with a Christian theme. <laughs> and then the, the clue would be, where's the Christian? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, those those two images don't necessarily – fit yeah. together real well so right but then in spring arbor we had uh, a little team because we started the program when i went there in 67 and 69 we were in the playoffs the nationals at erland college and we were the eighth seeded team going up against uh, undefeated eastern connecticut and the week before we beat undefeated wheaton one nothing at wheaton uh, to spoil their spotless record and joe bean by the way is one of my best friends over the years the, the Wheaton coach. Um, but our guys got off the bus uh, chanting, we're number eight, we're number eight. And they, we were known throughout the league, if not the country in, in that year as the loose grapes and I was the head raisin. And, uh, and so we went in against um, Eastern Connecticut and eight overtimes later defeated them one nothing. Uh, so, so that would be a very special group of guys I'm still in touch with. Uh, a band of marauders that you couldn't believe uh, that all should be in jail, but they're pastors and uh, missionaries <laughs> and guys like that. And then, of course, coming to, to Seattle Pacific, and we went 0-7-3 the first year because we were playing most of the teams in the league when I got here were using players that weren't even enrolled in school. They were 30-year-old guys that warmed up by smoking cigarettes. And uh, at the end of that year, I called for – 
a meeting of the entire Northwest, and we spent four hours banging away and came out with a conference, and I was the commissioner for 22 years. But the next year, we were in the playoffs. And in 78, after three failures to win the national championship, we won one nothing in three overtimes uh, against uh, the Nigerian national team masquerading as Alabama A&M. And, uh, and basically, uh, that team has to be considered remarkable because uh, we had no business being on the same field. And, and the day before, we went three overtimes to beat Southern Connecticut one nothing. It seems like everything we really accomplished was one nothing as far as how those things went. The and, over, and in overtime. Yeah. The 83 <laughs> game, uh, we were supposed to lose at Tampa because Jay Miller had himself a, a United Nations lineup that were just amazing. And uh, in fact, when we're taking the national anthem, the new scoreboard at the brand new stadium, Rude, Rude uh, Stadium, uh, had the message, the champagne is chilled, let the celebration begin. And Jay had gone on in, in our, our news conference and said, uh, when, he, when they said, who's going to win? He said, well, the team that will possess the ball will win and will possess the ball. And, of course, when we beat them, that was a, a big blow, but it was a, a great victory. The uh, 84 year was a team, a year that we should have won by 50 goals. And, uh, in fact, today I think it's still a record. Uh, we hosted Ford International. We took 29 shots wow. to their five, four of which Munga Academy took 40 yards away. We had 20. We had 19 corner kicks to their one. The one we created, we fanned on a ball, and um, and they scored on uh, by a goal by uh, uh, a guy named Edwards, who was one of Steve's first assistants when he came to Barry. And great friend, we had friendships. We're still great friends with Munga, but uh, but basically uh, we should have had that game, but we lose it on that corner kick. And uh, in fact, at the post game, uh, they're interviewing us on TV because it was a massive crowd in Seattle. And uh, Carl Kremser was apologizing, like uh, we, and he knew he shouldn't have won the game. <laughs> He's apologizing for being the champion. And after about four minutes of the apology, I said, Carl, I said, give me the trophy. <laughs> or I bust you in the mouth. And so then he started talking about his strategy. And then I told him, hey, back out. <laughs> so the next year, we come back down to the Florida International. We wind up in the championship with them again. And, it, and that's probably one of the sweetest victories, the 85 team, which was really the, the change from – just scrappy players to some really talented players. And then the next year, our big scorer, uh, who you need three guys to stop, uh, turned out to be ineligible. So we got him a pro contract and he dropped out. He was a brilliant guy. He's still one of my best friends to this day. But, uh, but he, uh, he wound up going into pros and, uh, and basically uh, we wound up with what they call the Smurfs. The Smurfs were just a bunch of scrappers and was the first NC2A team to win back-to-back national championships at any level. Obviously, Virginia and, and uh, other teams did it after that. But uh, So that 85 team was pretty special. 86 was special. 93 was the most remarkable thing because the semifinal was the game that an English writer came over to cover since the uh, Florida Institute of Technology, FIT, had I don't know, 
a half a dozen or more players from England from the youth national team. And Richard Sharp was the national leader. I think he's still the all-time record holder for goals in four years, 140-some goals. And, uh, and we were without our All-American goalkeeper who leading 4 nothing in the, in the uh, final in the West Coast, uh, leading 4 nothing. Uh, I told the guys at halftime, don't get euphoric because we're playing Sonoma and they have a little left winger who is fast as lightning. And uh, sure enough, he breaks loose with about eight minutes left in the game. I looked down to see if Marcus Hanneman, who, of course, went on to an amazing professional career in England and finished up with the Sounders. He's still a broadcaster with the Sounders. But I was looking in the goal to see Marcus get ready because he's a great one-on-one keeper and no goal. He's not there. So I looked at the concession stand behind him to see if he's over there, playful guy that he is, not there. Look back up, he's 40 yards up the field where he'd been standing all this time. And, of course, when the little the little mosquito came flying at him, he made a move and darted, went around him, and Marcus just spun and tackled him physically. Well, the referee, obviously, I knew very well uh, from California. He says, Cleef, he says, you know I have to eject him. I says, I know I wrote the rule. <laughs> <laughs> which, which the dog, that was the, the dog so rule, which is, denying an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. So in any event, uh, we played the semifinal against the number one team in the country at their place uh, with the number one goal scorer in the history of college soccer uh, with a 27-year-old Navy veteran who hadn't played in a game except the last eight minutes of that final on the West Coast. And, uh, and we're up against the team. Well, halfway through the first half, we're uh, leading 2 nothing, And in the last nine minutes, uh, couple of easy goals were given up. I went out to the field and put my arm around Chuck. His name, oddly enough, was Chuck Grenade. Oh, my. So I put my arm around him. I said, Chuck, and he's got his head down. He thinks he's going to get a blistering. I said, I want to thank you for letting those two goals in. Because they were, I think Marcus would have had them as sandwich material. But it's not to minimize Chuck. He's a great guy. He went on to a great indoor career. But anyway, uh, I said, now I don't have to make that dumb two-nothing speech at halftime. And he's looking at me like I've been in the berries and the mushrooms. So then 75 minutes into the game, we scored the go-ahead goal. And now we're ahead three to two. In the last minute, there's all kinds of turmoil there, whacking away and throwing the ball in there. And the ball came in like a blip, a slow motion blip. And everybody's mesmerized. And the four guys I had marking Richard Sharp were staring as well. And, uh, he made an assist. The guy puts it in. Now it's tied three to three. Oh, my. Well, four minutes into the first overtime in the days, as you recall, where you played two full supplements of 15 minutes, and then if it was still tied, you went into 215. Uh, right. victory. So four minutes in, they scored. Nine minutes in, they scored again. We're behind five to three. And uh, we're coming up to the end of uh, – uh, the second overtime period, which means we don't tie it where we go home. Well, with the minute and, and so with, with the, before this, the fourth quarter began, I got the guys again. I said, okay, if uh, nothing changes uh, halfway into this or five minutes into this last period, I'm going to pull Chuck and to put his Jersey on our twin all American, our center half back and our center back and our, our leading scorer twins. And, uh, and then we'll just go nasty. We'll go ugly. 
they're looking at me like I'm nuts. And I say, well, I'm an old hockey player. So, you know, if we lose by five, it doesn't matter. Well, anyway, with a minute and maybe, and we were just trapping him in there with about a minute and a few seconds to go. Uh, the ball pops out to James, who's 40 yards up the field. As a center back, he just pops it back in, and there's a big scrum. His brother winds up passing the ball into the open across. And there's only one guy standing at the far post, which is our captain, who so we called our foreign player. He's from Oak Harbor, uh, Washington, because it's an island, and we called him our foreign player. <laughs> and, uh, and so Travis heads the ball back the other side into the net, so everybody looks at the clock it's one minute one second five to four same thing happens we're going again only this time when the ball pops out there's a guy running dead out of you know just flying at james so he can't kick it he heads it up over top to our little two iron our little midfielder uh, who basically just turned and flung it into the their right back area well my right half back was the guy named Jonathan Swanson, who I always said he's not a soccer player. He's a musician. We showed up in a hotel one time. We couldn't find him. He's playing the piano in the open lobby, and guys are throwing $5 bills into a snip. <laughs> and, 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 and quiet as all get out. Uh, great distance runner for track and field. So he ran 60 yards from the right midfield position over to their right back position. And the guy's ready to kick a ball. Well, the crowd, when Nate Dalagon headed the ball in there, the crowd started counting, 15, 14, 13. Oh, my. I turned to my assistant coach. And I said, I didn't think you were supposed to start counting until 10. Of course, he's looking at me like I've lost it all, and I don't mind that at all. And uh, But what it did do is it told us how much time there was left. Yeah. And so this guy this guy at, at 9 is ready to clear the ball because if he gets his foot on it, the game's over. And uh, and instead, Jonathan puts his foot up and the guy winds up crossing the most beautiful cross you've ever seen. Well, there's about 200 players camped at the D at the top of the Plenary area. And the ball comes to Jason, the twin brother's chest. We're looking over his shoulder. The count's at four. He drops it to his left foot. He's basically right foot. Three, he fires it at two through this crowd and the keeper we can see diving to his right, he might have a chance, but we never have to worry because some Lee by the Sea England youth national teammate stuck his foot out, hit his heel, ricocheted into the other side, and everybody looks at the clock, zero, zero, one, zero, 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 game over, or at least the second quarter. Yeah. Second overtime. So they're all yelling, timeout. No, the referee says, no, it's a good goal. So now we go two overtimes. My goalkeeper coach looks at me and he says, I think we better get, uh, uh, you know, Chuck back in the game. I said, I don't think Chuck's ready for prime time. <laughs> so we, we left James in the net for the next 30 minutes. And then at quarter to one in the morning, after 13 rounds of penalty kicks, with Richard Sharp missing the key when it's still somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean, uh, <laughs> with, with that happening, uh, basically – uh, little Nate Delegant steps up and the crowd's on, hey, little boy, it's past your bedtime. Uh, the bus is leaving. And uh, Nate, of course, is the Iceman, so he slots it and we, we win the game 10 to 9. The game, two, the game uh, two nights later, so by then we had a day off in between. Uh, against Southern Connecticut, it was like watching your shirt go out of style. That was about as exciting as a 
wrinkled grape. Uh, but we won that one nothing and won the national championship. So I'd say that team has to be considered. But blindfolded, I don't know. Put those eight or nine groups and some of the ones that we didn't make it to the final, they were special people. So I suppose if I were really drugged and I had to pick the 85 team, uh, got something done that I didn't think was possible. Um, certainly the 78 team, the 93 semifinal certainly would qualify. And that got us to the game the next day, but the final wasn't much of a challenge. Um, in fact, the goal was scored with a toe punch. So, uh, but anyway, that, that's, that's my best answer. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a good thing that I, I asked you a difficult question. If I'd asked you an easy question, we'd be here for another three or four hours. But uh, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. I want to wrap up with this. And people who are, are still with us uh, have figured this out. You are known almost as much for your sense of humor as for your success. And I, here's my favorite Cliff McCrath story through the years. You were, we were together in Kansas City when one of the years the Soccer Rules Committee came to Kansas City for its annual meetings. And U.S. soccer at the time was choosing cities to host matches in the 1994 World Cup, and you were part of Seattle's bid. We're sitting there eating dinner, and the waiter brought you the phone and said, uh, you said, I have a phone call for Mr. McCraft. And you said, I hope it's the governor with my pardon. <laughs> and I will never forget <laughs> the waiter's reaction. And he hands you the phone, and he said, uh, he says he's the governor. <laughs> so I don't know if you remember that, but I will never forget the look on that kid's face thinking he would just finish serving somebody who should have been executed. But um, that, that's my favorite Cliff McCraft story. So here's my question with that. How does your, and I'll say this carefully, how does your sense of humor keep you sane? And, and we'll just assume that you are. So for the well, yeah, that, that that's a huge assumption because you'd have to find a different prerogative. I think it, it, uh, sanity's never been an issue. They, they they would line up all overweighted on the opposite side. My players, I think, I think one of my players said to Wozniacki, the guy who wrote the big article for the LA Times, he said he's a lunatic. Um, so I don't think sanity would be the issue. Um, I think my mother can be credited um, and her older sister. I can remember as a child, um, whenever there was a reunion, they would sit at the table and weep, uh, gasping for breath, reminiscing over things that had happened in their life. Uh, so uh, things that otherwise people might consider calamities, they were still laughing at. And that image of them laughing is still there. And so laughter was part of that, even though we were, uh, in very, very difficult uh, situations growing up. Um, and then when I blew my fingers off, uh, for those who don't know, this is a nub. Uh, this, is, uh, this is muscles, stubby and chub, and stubby does the talking. Hello. Uh, but when I blew my fingers off, uh, which is another story in itself, I guess the book has a good treatment, uh, the book number 47. Um, but... Uh, she was a great hero in helping me uh, go from being the first guy that everybody wanted on the team to being omitted and, um, and read some clippings uh, about people who lost their hands and 
in the war and learned how to play violin with an art with a bow tied to their arm and lost their fingers and learned how to type with their toes. And it was always something to laugh about. I mean, obviously we had hard times. Um, but I suppose the other thing is looking back, uh, there's two things I would say. One, um, I, I became, instead of the guy uh, on the streets, I became the freak, the seven-fingered you know, freak. And uh, being laughed at by other kids, and I was somehow endowed by my mother uh, to be smart enough to know that if I was going to join them, I would laugh too. So, so in other words, being yeah. my choice was either laugh at calamity or laugh at anything, or spend your life alone someplace with a sock over your hand and one over your head. So, I think that helped to hone a, a, a sixth sense, sort of, to see the humor in something. I've always been. Uh, the number one fan of the belly punch, you know, when you expect one thing and uh, and then suddenly there's that belly punch, like uh, like the guy that says on the plane, he says, what's your name? He says, my name's Tex. And I said, are you from Texas? He says, no, I'm from Louisiana, but who wants to be called Louise? Uh, you know, things of that nature. That uh, and, 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 and I think the belly punch that comes when my coach said, I've got a sabbatical. And I said, is it terminal? I, everybody laughs at that because that's not expected you yeah and i lectured in the university of new york universities for a few years on the uh, history of humor in america because i used to be a great fan. i never studied it to be funny i studied it yeah. because i laughed at things i still laugh at things too. i mean and and i get uh i get a little bit of scolding now and then because i i'm a bit irreverent I, like I, I, one of my favorites is, you know, the doctor who speaks to the guy who first consciousness after being out, out, unconscious for several days. And he says, doc, what's the problem? He says, well, I got some bad news and some worse news. And he said, well, which would you like first? He said, well, give me the bad news. He says, you only got 24 hours to live. He said, good night. What could be worse than that? He said, I forgot to call you yesterday. <laughs> so, so. Things that, or the guy that said, you know, sorry, we have to tell you, we had to amputate both your legs. He says, what's the good news? He said, the guy in the bed next to you wants to buy your shoes. <laughs> so, well, that's irreverent. That, of yes. course, doesn't get anywhere. Yeah. But it saved us. It saved my life from, you know, a lot of torturous moments. And, uh, and I think God, uh, you know, you always hear the phrase, well, God must have a sense of humor. Look what he did to us, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But I think I think it's uh, a gift. I think it's a gift that comes the same as I'm a big fan of Paul and the Pauline apostles, and I'm a big fan of how abrupt he was with everybody from the Corinthians, the Ephesians, Galatians. He gave a real thrashing. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think he uh, was his direct hits were were things that I think open the door for us to be uh, not only exposed to uh, a gift that people might not list for the spiritual gifts, but, um, but if it's uplifting and, and I don't like just sex jokes. I, I'm not a, people always want to say, Hey, did you hear that? Yeah. I've heard everyone that's ever been told. And uh, so you don't need that, but I think it's, it's stuff that keeps our eyebrows twitching and, uh, heart beating well so whatever if you know 
I've, I've eulogized a number. I never wanted one of my players to predecease me, but I've eulogized a number of them and uh, had a lot of memorial services. And I've said, what we really ought to do is put some planning into having one of these while the guy's still alive. Yeah. And, uh, and so I thought about it that if, and even if my Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die. Second part of that thing scares me after that, the judgment. But um, I think if, if like one, one prerequisite or one ticket you're going to have to have if anybody does, I once said that people that come to my memorial service be directly related to the weather. But if the people that do show up, uh, you have to sign a bond going to the door that, that uh, no tears unless it's from laughter. And, uh, and then when it comes to the open session, everybody has to have at least one terrible, I don't believe in jokes. I believe in things that make me laugh, but at least one terrible memory they have from something I said that made them laugh. And then they can all go away and do what they normally would do when they try to forget how sad they were. My grandfather used to tell, you were telling some doctor jokes and my favorite that my grandfather used to tell was ladies in the office and she knows she's sick and says, well, doc, how bad is it? And he says, well, I'm sorry to tell you, you only have two months to live. And she said, well, I want a second opinion. And he goes, okay, you're ugly too. <laughs> So, you know, well, I, that's it. Yeah, I, I think I think the reason we have gotten along so well for so many years is our shared sense of humor. And I shared earlier the first thing you ever said to me when you when you called, you said, why did we get the ugly one? And I admit that Lori was much prettier than I. Um, but it wasn't long before we started chatting about some stuff and you told me who you were and what you know, how I'd be working with you and and said, most people just call me Nubber. And I said, why is that? And he said, and you said, well, because I lost three fingers off my left hand. And I said, how did that happen? And you said, it was an accident. And I said, well, I didn't think you'd do it on purpose. And at that point, you knew that, <laughs> that we would be able to go back and forth. <laughs> Never, it's been a pleasure. It's been a fun hour. And I appreciate your time very much. It's always good to catch up with you. Tell Steve and his family, I said hello, and uh, I look forward to seeing you down the road. I love it, and I love you, and uh, my comment to you is the same as I think I left you with last time. Live forever plus 47 days. There you go. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.